Hello, welcome to my podcast, Post-Imperial China. This is episode 10, Japan. In my last episode, I covered the decade of the Nanjing government from 1927 to 1937. The decade saw the rise of Chinese nationalism and their leader, Chiang Kai-shek. We also learned that Japan continued and accelerated her political and physical role in China during that time. Japan tried detente with its Western allies in the hopes the efforts would legitimatize her actions in China, particularly Manchuria. Finally, I spoke about Japan's plans to feed her insatiable appetite for expansion of her China footprint. In this episode, it should be clear By now, Japan had an enormous influence in China, and that only increases. In this episode, I will start with the opening scenes of the conflict known as the Sino-Japanese War. It portended the eight-year horror show that followed. It also foreshadowed the coming World War The war began July 7th, 1937. Ever since the Boxer Protocols from the Boxer Rebellion at the turn of the century and the Russo-Japan conflict shortly after that, Japan had stationed troops in northern China to protect her investments. On the night of July 7th, during Japanese routine field maneuvers near the Lugao Chiao or Marco Polo Bridge, about 10 miles southwest of Peking, they encountered Chinese nationalist soldiers. What immediately came next is controversial. The Japanese claimed they were fired upon by Chinese troops. The Chinese claimed that it was a false flag executed by the Japanese. Whatever may have happened, the encounter marked the beginning of the Second Sino-Japanese War. The first one, some of you may know, was late in the 19th century during the Qing Dynasty and the Japanese Meiji era. The Second War between China and Japan would last eight years, foreshadowing and overlapping into the Second World War. The Sino-Japanese conflict cost as many as 20 million Chinese lives, but those are only estimates. Not to mention the incalculable 
property and societal damage and loss. The war led directly to the communist takeover of China in 1949, and it destroyed Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist government. The war, without question, was the most momentous event in the history of the Chinese Republic era. Whatever may have been the truth about the Marco Polo Bridge incident, the following points should be considered. One, for a long time, at least two decades, the Japanese had displayed an aggressive posture towards China. Two, it is known the Japanese had planned to split northern China away from the Nanjing government. Number three, the Japanese had feared the Chinese nationalists and the unification it meant. And number four, the Marco Polo Bridge was a vital strategic railway link. Securing it made sense if isolating and separating the country was a goal. But, to be fair, there's also numerous facts and points that I'm not going to mention here suggesting that the Japanese may not have committed a false flag. But, who knows? On July 25th, the two sides clashed again. A few days later, a Japanese military leader announced it would take punitive measures against Chinese forces for insulting the Japanese Empire. Chiang Kai-shek then made one of the greatest gambles of his career. He shifted the entire location where the battles would be fought in this war. Instead of the focus on northern China, he would instead move it south to the Shanghai area. Chiang Kai-shek's thinking was that the Japanese had the military advantage in an open field large region such as northern China. He knew his forces were inferior to Japan's. Japan had better and more equipment, tanks, guns, cannon, and troops. He would draw the Japanese to Shanghai, fight there, and if necessary, retreat to the far-off hinterlands of South and West China and force the Japanese to fight there, if necessary, in a much more rugged terrain, and it would neutralize the Japanese military strength. Also, Shanghai, in theory, would be easier to defend. It was a constricted area and not conducive to Japanese heavy artillery and tanks. The diversion to Shanghai would draw Japanese forces away from northern China and make that area easier to defend. Moreover, Shanghai was home to the largest settlement of foreigners living in China. They would see firsthand the Japanese tactics. Chiang Kai-shek was hoping to gain foreign sympathy and intervention. Because of all of this, it was hoped Japan would dampen its aggression. In early August 1937, Chiang Kai-shek positioned three of his best army divisions at Shanghai. These units, incidentally, were largely led by German generals and 
were equipped with German weapons. The repositioning surprised the Japanese troops already stationed there. They were quickly reinforced, but still greatly outnumbered. If the Nationalist forces had moved quickly and decisively, they might have been able to cause an early blow to the seemingly invincible Japanese military. On August 13th, the Nationalists led a ferocious assault on Japanese positions near Shanghai, and they nearly succeeded. But somehow they lost their initiative and instead had to slog it out with the Japanese. The scope, savagery, and slaughter that came with these opening events of the war defy belief and comprehension. After three months of fighting, over one-fourth of a million Chinese were casualties. That was about 60% of their forces. The Japanese also sustained heavy losses, estimated to be near 50,000. And of course, not to mention the enormous civilian casualties and property damage. In early November, the Japanese conducted an amphibious assault south of Shanghai, cutting off a possible southern withdrawal of Chinese troops. The Chinese instead fell back from Shanghai to Nanjing. At Nanjing, the Japanese offense slowed. Many of us know why. As a result of the savagery at Nanjing, 4,000 Chinese were slaughtered and about 20,000 women sexually assaulted. All of these events marked the beginning of the Sino-Japanese War. Before I go further, there's some things I want to mention. In this war, Japan used the bulk of her military forces. Over one million men plus thousands of pieces of military equipment. However, it was not clear what were the Japanese objectives in the war. For the Chinese, those objectives were clear, resist and repel. But for the Japanese, not clear. Remember, the war seemed to come as a surprise at a time it appeared that Japan was pivoting towards their international agreements. The chief feature of which was internationalism and cooperation with the Western allies. The war with China, of course, blew that up. Japan seemed to be plunging into a new system of world order, yet unclear and undefined. At the beginning of the hostilities, China had no illusions that anyone was going to help them. There was some hope, but no real anticipation. However, Both nations miscalculated. By late 1937, early 1938, significant international steps had been taken to stop Japan. For one, the Soviet Union, through cooperation with other nations and the League of Nations, was sending military aid to China, 
primarily military equipment. Japan was losing international respect, while China, or China's respect, was increasing. The world had turned on Japan. The Chinese plight easily fit into the then West's campaign to combat and end fascism. Made easier for the West when Germany decided to recognize Manchukuo and Japan in 1937. The stories of Chinese nationalists fighting for freedom against the fascist Japan empire fit well in the Western Allies' narrative. For Chiang Kai-shek, his road to this point had been had not been easy and had been a process, albeit a difficult one. He wanted to avoid an open and direct confrontation with the Japanese Empire. He believed, mostly correctly, that, Je- that China was too weak and divided and a confrontation with the Japanese would only set back China, maybe irretrievably. That had been the basis for his acquiescence and conciliatory gestures toward Japan aggression up to that point. Certainly out of necessity. But by the mid-1930s, that began to change. He saw the increasing anti-Japanese sentiment rising in his countrymen. Ever more hawkish. He could not blindly ignore it or fail to act upon it. The Xi'an incident in 1936 went with his chronological evolution and certainly solidified his position with Japan going forward. It was probably the final nail in his evolution. By early 1937, Chiang Kai-shek was replacing his advisors and ministers with more anti-Japanese people. He also had formed a fellowship with the Communist and a common goal to resist the Japanese. At the point, at the time of the Lu Gao Chiao or Marco Bridge incident, he had the greatest unity behind him in a generation. From Shanghai and Nanjing, Chiang Kai-shek's strategy was to retreat into the vast China wilderness of the South and the West. There, he was hoping to force the Japanese army to chase the nationalists into the hinterlands. That area was rugged and did not have much infrastructure. There, the Japanese forces would lose much of their military advantage. The Japanese would have to fight a long, difficult, and costly campaign. Then, once exhausted, the nationalists could surge and retake the Japanese-controlled territory. Chiang Kai-shek was willing to concede to Japan the coastal areas of China and most of China's urban areas. His strategy, by and large, worked. Unlike Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists, Japan never really had a perceived goal or purpose in the war. The Japanese also seemed to suffer from arrogance believing the Chinese were weak and would not pose a problem. However, 
They badly underestimated Chinese nationalism. Their early successes in the opening months of the war gave the Japanese a sense of invincibility. That attitude is reflected in the terms the Japanese were offering the Chinese to settle the hostilities. By December 1937, Tokyo was only offering harsh terms to settle the war. Some of what they wanted were formal recognition of Manchukuo, demilitarized northern China, and payment of indemnities. Given China's revulsion over war indemnities that it had paid in her past, it is shocking that Japan was proposing these. The last and most controversial of Japan's demands was the creation of a political structure to move toward a china japan manchukuo partnership and cooperation arrangement, whatever form that might take. Not surprisingly, the Nanjing government ignored those demands. In January 1938, Japan responded, publicly announcing their intentions to annihilate the Nanjing government. Realistically, China was never going to agree to those terms. Following the nationalists' escape from Shanghai and Nanjing, they moved their national capital to Chongqing. Wuhan was next for the Japanese. Wuhan was an important railway junction linking many parts of China. With the Japanese bearing down on Chinese forces and consolidating their positions west of Shanghai and south of the Yellow River, marks the largest act of environmental warfare in recorded history. The Nationalist initially denied being the cause of this incident. In June 1938, near Kaifeng, on the south bank of the Yellow River, its dikes were opened or destroyed. The surging water and flooding was meant to deter the Japanese. Deter it did. The campaign by Japan to take Wuhan was delayed several months as a result of the Kaifeng incident. The flooding was so massive, it actually changed the course of the Yellow River. Previously, the river had met the sea north of the Shandong province. After the incident, it entered the sea south of the province. You can imagine the damage. It was massive. I have seen human casualty estimates as much as 800,000. Innocent, civilian, Chinese. Also, between four to 5,000 villages were permanently destroyed, and maybe as many as 2 million Chinese permanently displaced. Even with the setback, the Japanese still managed to take Wuhan in October of 1938. This was about the same time they took Canton. 
It is easy to see why Japanese felt emboldened from these early events in the war. The Japanese expected the Chinese to surrender. That, however, was not going to happen. Ever. The early setbacks and Chiang Kai-shek's scorched-earth defenses were criticized. Adding insult to injury, by the fall of 1938, foreign help for China looked increasingly unlikely. Russia, by then, was the only nation actively assisting the nationalists. Nevertheless, Chiang Kai-shek seemed to remain unswayed and confident. He believed the Wuhan defeat marked a turning point in the nationalists' struggle. From Wuhan, the nationalists retreated into the rugged, mountainous wilderness beyond the function of modern communication and infrastructure. There, the Japanese' enormous advantages would be greatly reduced. There is no doubt that Japan must have felt chagrined and discouraged that they had failed to destroy the nationalists. At Wuhan, the Japanese lost the chance to put an early end to the war. I'll end the episode here, but I want to end with a question or a thought that I will raise again. Who were the beneficiaries of the Sino-Japanese War? Think about that. In the next episode, I talk about the CCP's role in the war against Japan. We'll look at whether the second united front between the nationalists and the CCP was merely an illusion or maybe something more substantive. I will also get into the new alliances that China found itself in the momentous events leading up to and during World War II. And much, much more. Thank you. It has been a pleasure.